Open your Bibles, if you would, to the late Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, the ninth chapter. I'll be reading verses 9 through 17 of Zechariah, chapter 9, before we then turn to the Gospel of Luke, also the ninth chapter, and we'll read verses 18 to 22. First of all, Zechariah 9, 9 to 17. Give your attention to the word of God. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners, who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. For I will bend Judah as my bow, I will fill the bow with Ephraim, and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I will make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them, and they will devour and trample on the sling stones, and they will drink and be boisterous as with wine, and they will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God will save them in that day, as the flock of his people, for they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs, Grain will make the young men flourish, and new wine the virgins. Now to Luke's Gospel, the ninth chapter. Beginning at verse 18, And it came about that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old is risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now, that we might understand from these pages what is your will for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. For well over a year now, Jesus had been making this tremendous splash all over Galilee, hadn't he? 
in the synagogue, in the open field, along the highways and byways of Galilee, Jesus has been teaching on the kingdom of God as no man's ever taught before, because he's been teaching with absolute authority. And then with a word or a touch, he's been healing hundreds of people, suffering a wide variety of diseases and afflictions, many of them well beyond the skills of any mere physician. Because he's been casting out demons. He's been restoring deeply troubled people to their right minds at last. He has raised the dead. So all through Galilee, he's a sensation. People love Jesus. They sought him out, just as you or I, or any reasonable person with eyes to see and ears to hear, would seek out this inexhaustible fount of every blessing. At last, it seems as though the fortunes of Israel are on the cusp of change. There's this general feeling, this spirit in the air of expectancy. It's as though we're right on the verge of a new age, a golden age, a messianic age. This oppressive gloom of political subjection to Gentile nations round about, it's been hanging over the people of Israel for centuries. Even after the return from Babylonian captivity, the Jews still had to deal with the Medes, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and finally the Romans. And every hand that ruled over them seemed to be heavier than the one before it. But now? Now, in this very generation, we are suddenly witnessing the return of prophecy. After 400 years of prophetic dormancy, 400 years of silence from heaven, John the son of Zacharias comes along preaching the kingdom of God. And although he's dead now, Herod murdered him. We mustn't despair, because by John's own testimony, he only served to clear the way for another one coming after him, another one who carries with him both an axe for the tree and a threshing fork for the grain to carry out God's long-awaited work of judgment among the nations. We mustn't despair. John is dead, but let us not despair, because now along behind John comes this even more remarkable man, Jesus. What are we to make of him? Who is he? Where exactly does Jesus fit into God's great scheme of saving Israel from her Gentile oppressors? That's how the question was generally being framed. In fact, John's Gospel, in chapter 6, includes this footnote to the feeding of the 5,000, which we considered together last week. John writes, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Well, how's that for driving home God's view of democracy? Jesus isn't about to let people make him their king. It always ends badly for the kingdom of God when people put themselves in charge. We first saw how that democratic process worked out with Saul back in the final days of the judges when Israel rejected Jehovah from being rightful king over them and chose instead this tall, good-looking man, Saul. 
Now, beloved, don't be mistaken. King, Jesus is. King, he will ever be. But not by popular election. No man, no body of men, is ever going to force his hand. The fruit of Jesus' redemptive reign has to ripen before it's picked. All that the Father has given him to do, he must do. And then when that redemptive work is finished, as it will be at the cross, when it's finished, it's the Ancient of Days who's going to receive him. It's the Ancient of Days who's going to welcome and seat him on the throne and grant him an everlasting dominion. It's not going to be people. So after the apostles come back from their brief preaching tour of verses 1 to 6, he withdraws. He escapes. Already he's left Capernaum and Galilee on the heels of stirring up Herod the Tetrarch's keen interest in him. We saw that in verses 7 to 10. And now, beginning at verse 18, he leaves the region entirely. Takes the disciples with him, of course, and heads north way up into the land of the Gentiles. Thus ends his great Galilean ministry and begins, here at verse 18, his retirement ministry, safely beyond the borders of Galilee and Judea. Safe for the moment, at least, from friend and foe. And what we're about to see is Jesus now focusing his time and energies on teaching the twelve the twelve, not the multitudes. Oh, we'll still see the occasional crowd that seeks him out and finds him, but nothing like the thousands who flock to him in Galilee. This retirement ministry is by design, because for the past year and more, this glorious river of God's kingdom has been overflowing all its banks. By the ministry of Jesus, it's inundated all Galilee, all Judea, with the life-giving glory of God. Now he's got to make that wide and glorious flood tide of grace actually navigable to ordinary folk. He's got to make it all understandable by deepening a doctrinal channel in the midst of it. Because by now the people of Judea, especially the people of Galilee, were feeling pretty good about things. Not completely focused, certainly not clear on every theological point, but uh, by any means. But what they're seeing and hearing in the ministry of Jesus gives them hope, and it makes them, in a general way, feel pretty good. So what they and we need to learn, and it has to begin with these twelve young men called to be apostles, what we need to learn is that this kingdom of God isn't the magic kingdom. It's not a believe-whatever-you-want-to-feel-good kind of kingdom. Roll-your-own-theology doesn't have a place in this kingdom because we're not the king. We're not the lawgiver. There's got to be doctrine taught, Jesus' doctrine, biblical doctrine, apostolic doctrine. In the kingdom of God, of which Jesus is king, there's got to be a loving but very careful discrimination between truth and error. 
between what's true and what's false concerning God and man and the world and our place in it. That's a lot of ground to cover. And it's going to take lots of private time training these twelve disciples just as far from the madding crowds as he can possibly get them. So by a roundabout route, this itinerant school of preaching God's kingdom ends up in the region of Caesarea Philippi, at the northern headwaters of the Jordan River. Seems an appropriate spot to raise this first foundational question of Christian theology. The question, who is Jesus? Because just as all the Jordan River flows from the springs of its northern headwaters, all of Christian theology flows from the right answer to that question. And the question's been raised before, hasn't it? We heard it, for instance, in the Nazareth synagogue. Isn't this Joseph's son, they were saying? The carpenter? We thought we knew him. Then again, the disciples began asking one another the same question on the lake that evening after the storm. Who is this? that even the winds and the water obey him. Herod Antipas asked it as he wrestled with his personal guilt over the murder of John. John I beheaded, he said, but who is this about whom I hear such things? That question is going to be asked and answered in various ways by various people on the pages of the Gospel. Some people ask the question and then they leave it unanswered. They don't follow it up. They don't track it down. It'll be wrongly answered by some, rightly answered by others, and very soon authoritatively answered from heaven. But first we ought to notice that when he gets his disciples alone, he prays with them. He prays with them. It's been his regular practice to pray for them, at least since that night before he called them to be his apostles. We saw that back in chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. And now that he's got them, he prays with them at every opportunity. Rather like parents with their children, I hope. But there's more at stake here, of course, than the propagation and maintenance of a godly seed into yet another generation, as vitally important as that is to a family. Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, the kingdom of God on earth is going to hinge on these twelve young men. So they've got to learn how to pray by hearing the Master pray. and then begins their undistracted, formal training as apostles. It begins with measuring their grasp of Christology. And notice how wisely he frames and sequences his questions of them. He begins by asking, Who do the crowds say that I am? We do well to know what the people around us are saying about Jesus, don't we? 
Partly, this is so we can helpfully address their various ideas in our soundly biblical answers. But it's equally important that you as apostles, and we today as Christians, not be unwittingly sucked into the popular misconceptions of which there are not a few in circulation. Don't let yourself become a church of theological lemmings. Don't just go along to get along. We've got to keep our minds sharp. We've got to keep our intellects in gear, whatever we consider the person and work of Jesus to be. We've got to be sharp on it. We've got to practice the art of thinking analytically through the data the Bible gives us concerning Jesus. The church striving not to be conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of our minds carefully discriminates between what others say about Jesus and what we on the authority of the scriptures say. We pay attention to what others are saying about Jesus, we sort things through, and when we do, we find there's an awful lot of it we have to reject out of hand when we think about what other people think of Jesus. And if this point holds true for our generation, and it does, how much more so with respect to the apostles, whose solemn testimony Christ appointed to become the doctrinal foundation of the church all the way down to the end of the age. You shall be my witnesses, he said. You shall be my witnesses. And being witnesses, you absolutely must stand your ground. Regardless of what 10 million other people with all their popular but erroneous opinions are saying, stand your ground. Then he said to them, But you, Who do you say that I am? And the you here, Y-O-U, the you here is emphatic. Your view as apostles on the person and work of Jesus has got to stand in stark authoritative contrast to all these erroneous views of the crowds. In a courtroom, a good judge won't allow hearsay testimony because it proves nothing. It's the testimony of eyewitnesses that decides the truth. So the you here is emphatic. It's also plural. You all. What do you all say about me? Because Christ builds his church on a solid foundation of unified apostolic testimony. There are no cracks in this doctrinal foundation. When they gave their solemn testimony, first to the Sanhedrin and then later to the nations, the apostles never once offered a minority report on this issue of who Jesus is. Because they knew with certainty who he is. All of them did. All of them did. And Peter, as was his habit, answered for them all. Had there been among them the slightest dissent from Peter's answer, this private discussion among the thirteen of them would have been the place to air it. In the absence of any dissent, the matter was settled. It was settled unanimously. Peter answered, The Christ of God. That's who you are. the Christ of God.
the Lord's response to this 100% correct answer appears more fully in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 16, the reading of which you may consider your afternoon homework. But Luke's account takes us in this direction. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Here's why you young men have got to stand your ground. Here's why you've got to be united in your testimony as apostles bearing this news with one voice to the world because the truth about the Christ of God, the truth about his person and especially his work, completely flies in the face of everything Israel and even the Gentile world beyond it expected. Israel's looking for a messianic king to lead them, to feed them, to defend them. They're looking for a messianic king to go out to battle before them and come again in, uh, come in again victorious, time after time after time. He may be, according to promise, the son of David, but the kind of king they want him to be is another Saul. They want him to be another Saul, someone to take on the Philistines, or in this case, Rome. So let me pause here to ask you, friends, what kind of a Christ do you want? The world around us offers a wide assortment to choose from. We the people is a popular one these days. We the people. Democracy. People can't seem to get enough of it. Certainly education is right up there. As a messiah. Wealth seems to work for many people. Or personal security. Or civil rights. The menu of false Christs in which people vainly trust goes on and on and on. All you have to do is tune into any media outlet, and there you'll find the various Christs of the world on parade before you, each one of them expecting, assuming, persuading, demanding your allegiance. Beloved, those things in which the people of the world trust didn't make the world they don't providentially sustain the world, and they're absolutely powerless to redeem it. So stand your ground against them. Because unlike all the rest, this Jesus is the Christ of God. Trust Him. Obey Him. Unlike all the others, this Christ won't lose interest in you when you run out of money, or run out of reputation, or friends, or family. He won't abandon you in old age. He won't abandon you in your sickness. He won't abandon you in death. The Christ of God is, by very nature and calling, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, acquainted not only with his grief, He's acquainted with yours. 
Who is Jesus? Some said one thing, some said another. The crowds wallowing in the mire of popular opinion got it wrong. The apostles, standing on higher, firmer, shorter ground, got it right. But the final authoritative answer was going to come about a week later. As once again Jesus took a few of his disciples up a nearby mountain with him privately to pray. And there Peter, James, and John see him not as he normally appeared to the crowds, not as he normally appeared even to themselves. There on the mountain they beheld him as he ever was. In the glory which he ever had with the Father before worlds came into being as in fact he ever is, in the radiance of his divine glory. And the question first put to the apostles near Caesarea Philippi was, on that memorable occasion a week later, not only authoritatively answered, but simply and helpfully applied, when a voice came out of the cloud, saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him.